Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Mike Kottmeyer is here tonight. Mike, thanks for taking time out of your evening. Man, I am super happy to be here. It's been a long time since we've done one of these things. It's been a long time since we started one and it took three tries to get it going. <laughs> we did. We did take three tries to get this one going. Hopefully, but, this isn't actually a precursor to a fourth try. So we'll no, see. this is the charm. This is the one that gets it done. Exactly. So um, Mike's been doing a series of webinars and yeah. we're going to be doing podcasts as sort of companion conversations to those. So yeah. maybe extend some of the ideas, dig into some of a little bit deeper. Um, I've got questions based on yeah. you know, what I've been seeing in them. Um, but what, what, what kind of brought about the idea for doing this video series, Mike? Well, so, so what's, what started um, as I was down in my gym and, and I was thinking about stuff in, in the original series, I don't think this is where we're starting today, but the original series we did was, around things I call like the physics of agility. Cause one of my big themes is like, I get frustrated and we get hung up on scrum or um, the, the, you know, the, you know, processes and things like that. And, and I kind of think that there's just things that just have to be true if we're going to be able to do agile. Right. So, so like the things I was writing up on my board are like the ability to balance risk and uncertainty, things we know and things we don't know. I was thinking things like encapsulation, orchestration, um, you know, balancing capacity and demand. There's a fourth one that I, that I seem to, that keeps slipping my mind. But so, so I reached out to Tim and I said, hey, let's do a series. Um, you know, it's like everything was shut down during the, the pandemic, still kind of is shut down. All the live events were getting canceled. So we're like, how do we get out and how do we talk about stuff? And so, and so we did this first four and we had a really good turnout, right? It was a really good thing. We got a lot of positive feedback from it. And so we took a couple weeks off and we said, okay, what should we do next? And we started, um, we decided we we're going to go through the, the transformation talk that I've been doing for the last couple of years. And so we did a six part series on the business drivers of agility that were like predictability, quality, early return investment, cost savings, um, innovation and product fit. And as I recall, you wanted to talk about um, predictability today. Yes, that was the goal. So we're going to try to do one of these for each of the different talks that you've done. And I have we'll a start, lot of questions about predictability. Yeah, so we'll start with the first six and then we'll see where it goes. And uh, hopefully it'll be a value add for everybody. I'm looking forward to, to seeing what happens. Me too. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. It's just so, always an adventure with us, man. It's just like you never know exactly where it's going to go. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, when you talk about predictability, like, can you give a little bit of a frame for that before I start ripping into all my questions about this? Yeah, sure. So, so it, it, the, it, it's most fundamental root. It's the ability to make and meet commitments. And so coming, you know, you and I both came out of the traditional project management world yep. and, and it was all about time, cost and scope. And we knew because we were like really good project managers that you get to pick two but the third one has to float, right? So you could yep. pick, you could pick time and cost, but then you have to vary scope, or you could pick scope and cost, but then you have to vary time, right? Because because we don't we know that we don't have perfect information. In practicality, though, um, most organizations want to get to a point where they where they can fix all three, right? And you just can't, right? It just breaks the physics of of project management. But, but I think sometimes in the Agile community, what we do, though, is we take that too far and we say, because we don't know everything, that means we don't know anything. And so, and so one of the themes that I like to start with um, a lot of times when I'm out speaking or, or talking with executives or talking with the teams is, is how do you get predictable using Agile, right? And how do you make any commitments? And, you know, in, in kind of Agile parlance, that could be as simple as, 
I know the size of my backlog. I know the velocity of the team. And I can start to stabilize velocity over time, make and meet sprint commitments over time. And, you know, I know I have some ability. And, you know, I always go back to Bill Wake's and Best Model, Independent, Negotiable, Valuable, Estimatable, Small, and Testable, right? I know that through sprint planning and, and collaborating with the product owner, I can make trade-offs to establish a stable velocity, get a predictable throughput, and start to be able to telegraph to the organization where we're going to be and when, right? And to me, that's predictability. Okay. That's what organizations need. So I want to start back at the project management side of this. You, okay. So with that background, um, there's always this desire to get predictability. And I mean, you can use all kinds of stuff like earn value or whatever to try to get yeah. some level of comfort that you know it's going to happen. Yeah. But my experience was every single time the plans I made were wrong. Yeah, for sure. There wasn't a single time they were right. So no matter yeah. how much effort I put into being or achieving some level of being able to predict what was happening, I was always wrong. Right. And yet when we move into agile, people coming from that background, they feel like somebody took the predictability away. Yeah. So do you have any kind of thoughts on why we have this illusion that we're going to have it in the, at all? <laughs> well, so it's really, it's, it's a tough thing, man, because it's like, if you think about it, so let's go to one logical extreme, okay. right? Nobody's going to give you infinite money and infinite time to be able to build an indeterminate amount of scope. Okay. Right. It's just not going to happen. Right. It just does. This business doesn't work that way. Right. Okay. So on some level we have to put guardrails around the situation. Okay. And so, well, okay. So let me, before I, before I go down that path, so they're not going to give you infinite time. They're not going to give you infinite money to build an indeterminate amount of scope. Right. And, but the other side of that extreme is companies want to be able to say, this is exactly how much money I'm going to give you. This is exactly how much time I'm going to get. And um, this is exactly what I'm going to get for my money. Right. Um, we know that's wrong too. Okay. And so, so the, the truth is going to lie someplace in the middle. The reason why the traditional project management storyline is so appealing is that it gives you the illusion of uncertainty or excuse me, the illusion of certainty. I can't talk yeah. about it. The illusion of certainty, right? So to your earlier point, we know that it's always going to be wrong but there's a period of time where at least I have the peace of mind because somebody told me I was going to get what I wanted when I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. But then agilists are coming along and they're saying, well, look, we're not going to give it to you anything you want ever. And we're not going to make any, meet any commitments yeah. and just empower us. And we're going to do the best we can. And we'll, we'll get as far as we get. Right. And the, the truth, like I said, the truth is in the middle. Right. And so, so the, the whole thing with scrum or really any small team methodology, um, it gets more complicated than big teams, but we'll just say small team methodology for right now is that, is that we have to manage, we have to manage scope to converge on the outcomes we want. And so the, the fundamental mechanism of the way scrum operates is it basically says, Here's this cross-functional team of T-shaped people that have everything and everyone necessary to be able to deliver against the backlog, 
right? Because the ideal scrum team doesn't have really any dependencies and, you know, it's not, doesn't have any external resources and there's no variation within the team. So that is fundamentally, right? All those, all those people, those human beings cost money and they, every two weeks, they have a cost profile. Right? And so we know how much the, the team burns dollar-wise every two weeks. And we know that our planning horizon is that two weeks. Or if we're like at a release, maybe it's like a 12-week window or, or something like that. Right. So what Agile's come along and done is it said, okay, you know the size of the team, that's static. You know the size of the sprint, two weeks, or you know the size of the release, you know, 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. So we've in effect fixed time and cost. And what do we have to do? We we vary scope to be able to maximize outcomes, right? But we don't want the variation of scope to be totally um, ad hoc either, right? So we vary scope two ways, right? We let the product owner prioritize the backlog so that the highest priority things are at the top. And then we meet with the product owner every couple of weeks through sprint planning, reviews, retrospectives, things like that. And we negotiate the actual, the actual definition of done of the user story so that when we leave sprint planning, the, the product owner has a reasonably good idea of what they're going to be able to get for their investment in that team over the two-week period. Okay. Yep. And so, so my thing, right. So back in the day when, when I was learning, when I was learning about scrum, the scrum guide was written as like a sprint commitment. And then I think they softened it at some point. I'm, I'm being a little funny here. At least I think I'm being funny. It was like the sprint suggestion or the sprint, maybe we'll get it done or <laughs> sprint target or something like that. Right. The way that, the way that I was kind of taught this in my early days is this, the team makes a commitment. Yeah. And if the team overcommits um, and doesn't get it done, it's not like you're going to beat anybody up, but we say, okay, well you signed up for 40 points. So you only got 25 done. So only sign up for 25 the next time. Right. But we should make a pretty good effort to get the 40 we signed up for, but we're going to, we're going to throttle it back. Or let's say we got all 40 of them done and we go, wow, that's not a sustainable pace. So we say, okay, we're going to throttle back and we're going to operate at a more sustainable pace. Okay. And so the only thing when I talk about predictability that the team, it's like Dennis, Dennis Stevens says something. It's like, we need a reliable system that we can reliably and predictably delegate into and have a pretty good idea. We're going to get out the other side. Okay. And that's what scrum is kind of supposed to be, right? We put in this stack rank backlog team talks about it, discusses what's reasonable for the, for the next sprint makes a commitment in my world and then delivers against that commitment. Right. That's, that's a predictable outcome. Okay. And what we generally find is that, is that it's like, and it get back to the project management days. It's like if, you know, progressive elaboration, rolling wave planning, like I should be able to make and meet a commitment two weeks out. I should have a pretty good idea of about what I'm going to be able to get through in the course of a release. And then you get much outside of the release and now you're dealing with like roadmap level stuff. And that should be thematically correct high level aligned, right? It's, it's, it's like boundaries and guardrails at that stage. But it's like, but this is the thing I think people miss is that when we talk about scope being negotiable, again, it's on two different dimensions. It's the, it's the prioritization in, the, in the, the backlog, right? We can take stories out, we can put stories in, but it's also in terms of the scope and complexity of the user story too, right? So the acceptance criteria can be negotiated within the sprint. Yeah to make sure that the user story is delivering the highest value, um, you know, benefits 
and, and leaving out the things that are less valuable, right? And so if you think about it, right? So we're fixing time and costs on these two week intervals and we're constantly negotiating with the product owner to maximize value. Right. And, and generally what happens, right? And you've seen this, I've seen this, is that when you keep a team together and you focus them on a singular backlog with a singular product owner and they start to develop like really good kind of um, tacit understanding of what it is that they're working on, velocity stabilizes and that team gets really predictable. Okay. They get really good at making meaning commitments. And then we do things like we turn around and give them a different product owner and mix backlogs. And then we, you know, we rotate people in and out of the teams and we totally destabilize all that stuff. So predictability is the key, man. I'm telling you. And so the point being, right? So here's the interesting thing. The point being, and then I'll let you ask your second question or, or, or go on this I one. I got right? one. I'm well, in I London. Do, I know you do, right? <laughs> so, but here's the thing, right? If not predictability, what else? Right? It's like, it's like you're just going to tell people that they just can't have anything that they want or not commit to any dates whatsoever? Only if I'm waving my hands in a circle. Yeah, you might be able to get away with that <laughs> in certain contexts or in small environments, but where predictability gets really key is when even in the best situations, right, you've got multiple teams that are working towards some sort of common outcome or some sort of release and market or whatever, right? It's like, it's like the teams need to have some degree of predictability so that they kind of know where each other are going to be. Okay. Uh, especially if they get integrated with each other. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So can I ask my question? Ah, absolutely, please. Okay. So it's kind of based on what what you just said plus what is in the video and I'm I'm heading towards yeah. the enterprise level part of it. Okay, cool. Um we talk all the time about how teams need to get predictable in, and that's like, you know, one of the main things I always say the scrum master's job is to get the team to a place, uh, a high performing learning team that can make and meet commitments. Yep. Um, but there's other factors in the organization that are constantly tripping them up. There's work yeah, that gets sure. jammed into the sprint, other stuff that breaks down, new work yep. that comes up. Yep. And it's still, at least from the way I look at it, it we still consider it to be the team's responsibility to like get it together and just figure it out. Um, oh. if, we were, if we were really talking about predictability, couldn't we look at the entire organization and say, okay, well, you know what? In this place, every third sprint, they throw something into the middle. And, and every fourth sprint, they change this thing. And we could, we could track data across performance of all the executives, all the different groups. And regardless of whether the teams were stable or not, we could still get predictability, couldn't we? I'm, you know, man, I don't think so. I don't okay. see it that way. Um, you know, you, the, the question, right? The, the thing I always go back to is like, okay, maybe, but like what would be the mechanism of it, right? You're basically saying if we average everybody's output. If every company had Troy it, working there. They could figure it out. Who's Troy, man? Troy I'm, McGinnis. Sorry, Troy oh, McGinnis. Okay. okay, my bad. Okay, okay, got it. Wow. Okay, <laughs> a second. Okay, cool. Um yeah. So, so, so again, right. So when you have somebody like Troy and when you have really, really, really amazingly smart people that can do that kind of analytics, like, yeah, sure. Right. But, but for us mere mortals that are out here in the world, right. The first thing you said is, and I refuse to accept it, right. I okay. get 
I get that the reality is, is that we have malformed scrum teams operating off of really crappy backlogs that don't have deployment pipelines and you can't get something to a working tested state, let alone deployed into production, yet alone getting user feedback in real time, right? I get that all that stuff is broken. Okay. I get that managers come along and they firebomb teams with stuff in the middle of the sprint and, you know, defect work comes in and all that stuff like that. That is the reality. Okay. But what I'm suggesting is that's an unacceptable reality. And so when I do these talks on the three things and I go teams, backlogs, working tests of software, if you want the benefits of scrum, right? You want to deliver. What was it Schwaber said? This was 10 years ago. I've had it in my talks before and I don't even know if he actually said it, but I always quote him on this. As I, he said something like 70% of the scrum teams won't get the value they expect out of. And you go, why? Right? Well, it's because, it's because they don't have the conditions created to do scrum well, right? For all the things you just said. And then what scrum comes along and says is it says, okay, well, the scrum master is going to help the team identify those impediments and then resolve them. But the, the vast majority of all of the different, um, you know, scrum masters that are on teams, like they don't have the agency to go out and fix these problems. Yeah. So what you have is you have a bunch of broken scrum teams working with scrum masters that aren't actually empowered. And you know as well as I do, that's like, that's not scrum, right? right. It's not the way that scrum is supposed to um, it's not supposed to work, right? And so, so like, I, I talk about forcing functions all the time. And it's like, we have to sit here and go, look, this is the way it works, right? You don't get the value out of Scrum by sitting here and doing some bastardized set of things and calling them Scrum and expecting to get the outcome. Like, it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work, right? And so, and so when you start to talk in the small about this, then, then it's to me like the fundamental delivery, like the fundamental bit of, um, you know, the delivery organization is a team. Now, okay, so let's say, let's say your conditions are created such that in the organization that, that you're never going to get the value out of Scrum that you expect. Well, then stop doing Scrum. Right. I mean, this is where David, David Anderson came along and introduced Kanban, what, 10, 12 years ago now. And he basically said, look, look, if you can't, if you can't overlay Scrum on top of your organization, like that's fine. Let's model the value streams where they are and let's put a Kanban in and let's start using some lean kind of governance and some flow based metrics. And, and sure, if there's dependencies and bottlenecks and, you know, handoffs between teams, we can model that. But now what we have to do is we have to focus on small batch sizes. I have to focus on flow. We have to focus on theory of constraints. We have to focus on all these different things, right? So there's ways around it, right? To achieve agility without doing scrum. Okay. But if you're going to do scrum and get the business benefit from it, you have to do it by the rules. Another Schwaber's like, I think there's another Schwaber quote from back in the day. All this stuff's popping out of my head. It's like, it's inarguable. Like nobody ever asked the question, does chess work? Right. It's like you have this, I think it's what I'm <laughs> just like eight by eight, you know, thing is 16 pieces. Right. Yeah. Like, it's like, you know, you have, there's an expectation of the way the board is laid out and there's an expectation of where the pieces are set up and there's an expectation of the way the pieces move. And if you don't have the board and you don't have the right pieces and the pieces aren't moving in the right way, like you might, you might think you're playing chess, but you're not really playing chess and don't expect to, to have the outcomes of a chess game. 
right? And, and this is what's happening in the Scrum world so often. It's like people are going through the motions of Scrum, yeah, but they don't have the conditions created to do Scrum properly. Okay. Okay. And yep. so that's where I sit down and I go, okay, cool. So given, so, so the world that I live in is I say, here's the conditions that you need to do Scrum. This is how you do Scrum. And a team with the right conditions doing Scrum can achieve predictability. It can, right? And then, but I usually say it from the other side. If you want predictability, you need to create the right conditions and put these people in a position to be successful. Yeah. Like that's the way it works. And so when we go in and do transformations, it's like, like, like this is the reason why, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of a training only approach because it's like, you can teach people to do scrum all day long. And if they take it back into a broken ecosystem, it's going to stay broken. It's going to stay broken. Yeah. Unless you have somebody who's incredibly um, skilled, experienced, charismatic, influential, that can create the conditions, right? And they yeah. do a bunch of the personality. I mean, that happens, right? It's not out of the realm of possibility. So the, but, the, oh, yeah. good. No, you please. So the thing that I'm trying to get to, I agree with everything you just said, and I love the way that you turned it around too, but I would still say that, you know, if I've got teams that are not fully dedicated, it's predictable. It's going to suck. It's not going to oh. work right. Okay. So okay. I'm looking for something to add on. It's not just predictability. It's predictability uh, of what? That's the thing okay. I'm trying to get. Well, okay. So I think when I say predictability, what I mean is predictability of positive outcomes, right? Like a okay. predictable train wreck, right? Oh, you, you, you were never going to deliver anything I want, right? Sure, that's predictable. Well, no, but they're solving one problem. Yeah. Like all the places where they've got people being scrum master and product owner at the same time. They think that that's solving a problem. We know the result of that is predictable. Well, okay, sure, right? Okay, so, okay, so let's be really clear. So when, I'm so, so when I usually set this kind of a conversation up, right, what I'm talking about is why do people want to adopt Agile in the first place? And then I say, you know, the first of the six things I usually talk about is they want to be predictable. What does that mean? That means the ability to make and meet commitments. It's the ability to do what you say you're going to do. So that we can run the business. Yeah, so you can run the business, right? So you can integrate with other teams, so you can put product and market on time, so that you can commit to customers, so that you can do all these things, right? And so, so there's usually like a frame that I've established. And so I, I define the word predictable. So from there on out, I don't really have to define what it means. Yeah, you can be predictable in lots of negative ways, right? You, you, know, you, don't, you, know, you don't have complete cross-functional teams. You are predictably not going to have stable velocity. You don't have somebody that can build a well-crafted backlog. You are, you are predictably going to have chaotic sprint planning meetings and not exit a sprint planning meeting with a, with a clear plan for how to execute, right? If you, can't, if you can't integrate dev and testing and get something deployed, like you're going to predictably not be able to deliver a working test and increment of software that meets any reasonable definition of done. I mean, all that stuff's predictable. That's just not the kind of predictability. No, I know. I guess for yeah. me, the, part of where I'm coming at it from is I, those waterfall practices, they're pretty predictable too. It's wrong. Well, well, My so, Gantt charts are wrong. I know that. And well, so... Well, so, but they're predictable. They're predictable in negative ways too. Right. right? And so the, the fundamental fallacy of a waterfall project is, I mean, it starts off with the fact that requirements are fundamentally knowable. And, you know, we accept the reality that, that requirements to some degree are going to emerge. They have to be negotiated as we go. Um, it fundamentally 
um, it fundamentally believes that the estimates um, associated with most work items are knowable, right? Well, at the size of the work items that we tend to break down into a, into a work breakdown structure, they're not typically knowable. Um, the, the throughput of a given individual on the team, their ability to produce deliverables based upon that estimate, you know, it depends on whether they're sick or having a good day or a bad day or fighting with their spouse or if their kid's at home or, you know, their COVID lockdown or like whatever, right? Yeah. I mean, and so in theory, right? And so this is a lot of times what I'll tell people when we're having this conversation. It's like in theory, if I could, if I had perfect understanding of the requirements and perfect understanding of the estimates and perfect understanding of any given individual's ability to deliver against those estimates, like, like waterfall would be perfect. And I'm not going to get the words right here, but I want to say kind of like a Swaber um, quoting machine today, but like back in the book that he wrote with um, Mike Beadle. I'll have to send him a copy of this one. Yeah, sure. Right? <laughs> and he'll probably go like, didn't say that, didn't say that, didn't say that. But I believe this one's traceable back to the book that he wrote with, with Mike Beadle. And it's basically, and again, I'm not going to get the words they use right, but it basically says that in a stable system, it is most effective. It is the best way to do, to do management is to basically, in effect, get the requirements, estimate the requirements, assign people to the requirements, deliver the requirements on schedule and that, right? And, but that's if the system can actually be predicted, right? In a system where like the tolerances are, are not in line, right? We don't know the, the, the actual size of the requirements. We don't know what it's gonna to take to build them. And we don't know um, how people are gonna show up in any given day. We have to use more empirical process control, right? So we have to, that's what the whole sprint thing is, right? It's like you're sampling the delivery of the team's delivery every two weeks and measuring what they've been able to produce. And you're using that past performance as an indicator of future performance. Yeah. Right, to begin to start to hypothesize on, on where that team's going to be in the future. And, you know, we, we've, we've um, taken all these really smart ideas and we've reduced them to very simple concepts. Product owner builds a backlog, works with the team during sprint planning, decides how much to pull in, um, maybe breaks it down into tasks, right? Puts it on a board, does daily standups, does reviews, does retrospectives. Like what people have lost is that it's fundamentally – um, a sampling, to, a, a mechanism for sampling the throughput of the team so that we can start to start to um, control variation, right? And that's what, that's the science behind Scrum. And so in order to do that, you have to get to a definition of done at the end of the sprint. Yeah. You have to have a complete cross-functional team of people doing the work. You have to be operating off of a relatively known backlog or else all you're doing is injecting different kinds of noise into the system. And so, and so the, the, the PMI waterfall tape people are right. If the requirements are knowable, yeah. if, uh, if the team's estimates are good, if the, um, if the people showing up can deliver against those estimates in a reliable, predictable way. Right. And then Glenn Allman would tell you that, you know, you buffer things and you, you know, you, you know, part of the problem is traditional project management puts point estimates on things. What we really need are ranges. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of really mature, thoughtful ways of doing software project management in a more waterfall way. But we just don't usually do that. Right. And so and, and, and so then then you start getting into like speed to market and variation and change and instability and all those kinds of things. OK. Yeah. So, 
get me on a rant. Sorry. Right? Yeah, I know. I, I wanted to jump in before you got too far past my question. Yeah, so cool. you just talked about the science of Scrum. And this yeah. is all about trying to make stuff that is impossible to truly know. If, if we can't truly know it, at least we have a, an approach and a process that we can hold on to that yeah. will guide us through. Yeah. If the science of Scrum is about that, yeah. Is the psychology about the trust that we can build by gaining that predictability. If my team has a velocity of 67 I can tr- and I can trust them, then I can let go of some of that panic of, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? Well, well, yeah, right. So, like, there's a lot of frustration um, in companies between – and I hate to say, like, the business and IT or, you know, the business and product development because it's, it's all the same thing at the end of the day, right? But the people that are focused on customers and markets and the people that are focused on writing lines of code and, and like, building stuff, right? Um, there, tends to be, there tends to be a bifurcation of that in, in most companies. And, and, and so here's, like, what happens is that the teams are not put in the, in the proper context – to be able to make and meet commitments, right? So it does kind of start there. Whether they're doing waterfall or scrum, right? Just like what you start you started off our conversation with. It's like they are um, they are dealing with interruptions, they're yeah. dealing with people being pulled out of the teams, they're dealing with being redirected, they're dealing with dependencies, they're dealing with technical debt, they're dealing with all this different stuff, right? So the teams are inherently unpredictable. Um, oftentimes through no direct fault of their own. And then the business people are sitting over there going, yeah, those teams, you know, can't produce anything, right? So the only thing they know to do is to just put pressure and pressure and pressure and pressure on the teams and make demands yeah, and, and death marches and things like that. And then, and then what happens is that dates are missed and commitments are missed. So then they shift priorities because they're trying to fa- focus on the next reasonable business opportunity. So then the team stops um, trusting the business because the business changes its mind all the time and never lets them finish anything, right? And so you get in these like really unhealthy cycles. Yeah. And, and so, so a lot of times like what you do is you have to go to the business and explain to the business why IT is broken. And then you have to go to the IT and explain to them why the business is broken. And that the only, that the only thing that you can do is get the teams, the delivery teams, into a trustworthy state where they can start to operate in a predictable system that the business can delegate into, right? Basically, that's Scrum, right? Establish stable velocity, have a backlog, rules of engagement for how the backlog changes, have some understanding of when things are going to pop out of the backlog in a predictable way, right? All that kind of stuff. And then, then so you have to create the conditions for IT to be able to start to develop um, a trustworthy system, then you have to go offer that trustworthy system back to the business and say, hey, look, we're trustworthy now. Let me teach you how to operate this trustworthy system. And then, you know, hopefully they come to the table and they learn how to exploit this new agile delivery capability. And it, and it happens over time. But it's like, unless, unless somebody's going to be able to make the effort to build this trustworthy system, we're going to stay broken. Yeah. Yeah. So, and in the absence of trust, it, it just, I want to check in with you on this. It seems to me yeah. like when there isn't trust, that's when the default response is often control. Well, well so, yeah, so there's a really interesting thing. And, and when we were doing some of the predictability stuff and we were doing um, one of the earlier talks was trust versus trustworthiness. 
Yeah. You know, there's this, there's this thing in the agile community that I hear sometimes. It's like, we well, have to trust the team. Um, the, the absolute practical reality is that the teams have historically not been trustworthy. And, and just be really clear. I don't mean as human beings that they lie, cheat, and steal. What I'm saying is that the, the systems that they operate in don't produce reliable results. Right. Okay. So the systems that these human beings are operating in have not historically been trustworthy. They, they haven't yielded predictable outcomes. And so when you say trust us, what I would suggest is that there is no pattern of trustworthiness to rest upon. And I would suggest even further that the systems are sufficiently broken that there's not a reasonable expectation that they will ever become trustworthy. So it's a big leap. So it's a, it's a, it's a, well, it's not only a big leap. Um, from the business side, it's actually irresponsible because they're saying, okay, fine, I'll trust you. But it would be like, it would be like um, if you needed to go across country and you had a poorly configured car that was running on fumes and had gas leaks and was prone to a lot of failures. And your driver's just like, yeah, trust me, man, we're going we're gonna to make it happen. You might, have, imagine. you might have pretty good reason, yeah, to look <laughs> at that and go, you know, I don't know, right? I don't know, right? And so, so, what I'm, so what I'm suggesting, and this is, this is generally the approach when you come in and you, um, and you start a transformation, is you say, look, we have to get these teams to a state of predictability. In yeah. order to do that, we have to create complete cross-functional teams, typically organized around a feature set, a product, a business capability, or a value stream. And we have to create the conditions um, through backlogs and the ability to produce work and testing government software. We have to create the conditions to where velocity can stabilize. And we have to, we have to wrap it in an operating model that gives the business the ability to make trade-offs and, okay. to, and to get their highest priority things. So you put the team in, in to a set of conditions to where trustworthiness becomes um, a reasonable expectation of them right, as individuals and of the organization. And then they establish that trustworthiness by stabilizing velocity. And then they teach the business how to um, exploit that new delivery capacity to its economic advantage. And then they build trust with the business. And then as, as the business begins to trust the trustworthy system, they have less need to... Um, artificially manipulated through command tactics, command and control. Okay. And so if I had a highway yeah, and instead of one broken down car, I had 12 broken down cars. Well, yeah. That's where the scaling thing becomes way more problematic. Well, 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 yeah. Right. So now, so now we have a different set of issues, right? So as I think everybody knows, or if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, I live in Atlanta and traffic in Atlanta can be a mess. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. I wasn't even thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, and traffic in Atlanta can often be a mess. And so every morning there's, um, fortunately, I don't, I don't drive through rush hour in the mornings, even pre-pandemic. Like I, I'll either drive to the airport or I'm working from my house. Um, and, and so, you know, there's two problems, right? It's like your, con- well, maybe three, right? So two are kind of variant on the same theme, right? You have cars breaking down in the, in the middle of the interstate and you have yeah. accidents that happen. Right. So, so the normal flow under the best of conditions has been interrupted. And then 
you, you know, you end up with too much volume on the interstate. So now we have, we have like either one of those two things would slow down the organization. It's so in, in the interstate, right? So, so too much volume will create bottle, will create throughput issues and, and individual cars clogging up the interstate will create throughput issues. Then we do them both at the same time here in Atlanta, right? So it's just a big mess. And so, and so the, the, op, the thing is, right? So you got to get all the individual components on the interstate working to your point, right? All 12 right. have to be in good working order. And then you have to make sure that you're not, you're not putting more stuff into the system than can actually move through the system. Right. So we started seeing in Atlanta, you know, like you start to see um, red, green stop lines, like throttling the cars. Yeah. Right. So you get more backup on the side streets, um, which is which is a different class of problem. But it's like it creates better flow on the interstate. You know, so so that's where I started getting into some of the physics conversations before. It's like it's like you have to balance capacity and demand. But but in a low trust command and control where the system's broken and nothing gets through, the only thing people can do is get on the interstate, get on the interstate, get on the interstate, get on the interstate, get on the interstate. And, and it's like, we got to get the system working, right? Get the system flowing. And then we got to make sure that we're throttling the inputs into the system so we can balance capacity and demand, right? All those things create greater predictability. Okay. So, and so this is where you and I go south sometimes, right? Because I know when you're doing your CSM classes, you have a lot of people in those classes that are operating in broken systems where there's cars broken down on the road all the time. And, um, and then there's people loading too many cars onto the interstate. And the ro- road's full of potholes. And the road's full of potholes, <laughs> right? Yeah, all kinds of different things, right? And they're like, and the question they ask is like, how do I do scrum? How do I get twice the work in half the time? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this is the whole organizing principle behind Leading Agile is you don't, right? So, so my take is, is that what you're fundamentally doing is you're tra- training evangelists to go back into the organization and fight the good fight and help the organization understand what it takes to be able to solve these kinds of problems. Yeah. But if they're not willing to solve the problems, there's nothing daily stand-up meetings, reviews, and retrospectives, and backlogs, and scrum masters, and product owners can do to improve the system. So, so again, the whole hypothesis behind scrum is that you have this role of a scrum master that's going to be able to fix these things. And, and, and you see it as much as I do, right? You, we, have, we have underpaid, undereducated, underexperienced scrum masters all over the place. And the role we've given them is be like the team project manager, facilitate yeah. meetings, take the notes, keep the board up to date, right? All that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I would think that, that the guys that invented Scrum, you know, um, Schwaber and Sutherland and Beetle, like, like that's not what they meant. I mean, I want to say like Mike Beetle was like the first Scrum master. Like that guy's got some experience. He's got some chops, Right. Like, I don't think he was, like, operating like the team secretary. Right. The board up, he might have been keeping the board up to date, but he's going out. My, my guess, and I, I wasn't there, right? My guess is he's going out and fighting the good fight and going, this is broken, this is broken. We got to do this. We got to do this. Like, and just manipulating the whole organization around him. Like, I think so many of these concepts have been so fundamentally watered down that, that they've become meaningless at times. Well, is it, is it that or that they worked in those organizations with those people? Well, 
Well, that's so. So you're like a great straight man in this, and like, it's, so it's like it's like absolutely right. It's so you, but you look at any methodology that's been codified, right. safe, less disciplined, agile delivery, Scrum, XP, Nexus, like whatever, right? Feature driven development, DSDM, right? They all they were all um, crafted within a particular ecosystem with a set of constraints. Right. And then some consultant writes a book and we put together a certification program around it and we codify it even further. And we say, this is the way you do things. And people look at it and they go, well, this is the best practice and all this stuff. And the reason why is because <clears throat> I think is that a lot of the earlier guidance lean, um, you know, critical chain project management. Um, I'm trying to think like six Sigma, um, PMI, OPM3, right? All of those things like looked at the organization in its current state and said, how do we enable it, right? How do we get work to flow over this complex organization? And it didn't really speak to organizational design. With Scrum, Agile Methods in general, there is an implied organizational design, implied. And, and the methodology doesn't work in the absence of that organizational design. They have to be congruent. And so to get the benefits of Agile, you have to have a compatible um, organizational design underneath it that enables that operating model. And so when we do transformation, like I don't even, like I don't care what methodology people want to pick. Like we can help them build a custom one based upon core principles and reference architectures. They want to do safe, do safe. They want to do less, do less. But like, but like, think about like less, right? Less is highly, highly contingent upon having complete cross-functional teams that are technically independent of each other and can deploy continuously. Which is a right? big ask. That's a huge ask. Right. And, and it's like, and there's like a line. And again, I haven't looked at this line in a long time where like Vod and Loman, uh, Bosford and Craig Larman, God, I got that totally wrong. Bosford and Craig Larman basically wrote, Oh yeah. And it could take you years to get to this state, but just keep trying or something, you know? <laughs> and I remember it's like this 400 page book and the whole book hinges on that, like that single sentence. Right? That's totally boss though. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, just, yeah, just keep at it. Right. And, and, and I'm like, I'm like, everything else you've described in this book doesn't work if that's not true, right? But doesn't that also speak to the idea that those guys are focused on a culture of continuous improvement and not as much well, we've well, arrived? Sure, right? But sure, right? And that's the way that's the way all this stuff works is you have really, really super smart, self-aware people that recognize the context they were in and did really super smart things and codified it and took it to the world. And all these guys have written great advice. But the problem is, is you gotta understand their context. And so if you're at a big giant auto manufacturer, you're at a big giant pharmaceutical or a big giant financial services organization, and you go, yeah, I, I wanna do less. You have to look at like the kind of organization less wants you to have. And, and you say, okay, can I do that? Well, there's a transformation journey that has to happen, right? You have to form the teams and you have to decouple the systems and you have to build the technology architecture to be able to do that. Sure, right? And that's cool and you can do that, but just know it's gonna probably take you eight to 10 years or three to four years or however long right. it's gonna take. 
Right. Right. And don't expect to get, don't expect to say, to send everybody to less training and come back and go, okay, we're all doing less now. This is all going to be super awesome. Right. It's, it's a journey. And so what we find in early stage transformations, like let's say somebody wanted to get to less, they're probably doing something heavier than safe to start off with. And as they start to figure out how to reduce batch and start to break some dependencies, they can start to deprecate some of the compensating controls, and then they can start changing some of their governance, and then they can um, break more dependencies and create more CICD pipelines and better DevOps and all this different stuff, and then deprecate more compensating controls and lighten up governance and, and everything. And then they get this, and then they have to change the way the business operates, and then like, okay, now we can do less. Right? But it's like, it's like, that's a lot, right? That's yeah. a lot. So, so what we find, and this is to our detriment sometimes, is that most of these organizations don't want to go that far. And so they need something that is agile enough, right? And, and, so, and so what my belief is, is that we have to be, we have to be um, super pragmatic about where it is we are, where we want to be, um, and how we're going to get there. Yeah. Okay. So, um, can I ask you one more question about this? Yeah. And, then we'll, and then we'll shut it down. Um, what is the biggest misunderstanding about getting predictability at the enterprise level? What is it about getting predictability? Misunderstanding about getting predictability. I mean, in the video you talk about how you have to, you, team level agility is not going to, you, you can't have enterprise level predictability without team level predictability. Right. Well, so, um, so here's the interesting thing about predictability at the enterprise level, right? Especially, and so the context that I'm in is that at the enterprise level, what tends to, um, what tends to be the hallmark of a more enterprise-focused agile is that you have work group level delivery with lots of teams that have dependencies between them. And oftentimes you have dependencies between work groups and you have dependencies between platforms. Okay. So, so enterprise agility is not about any one team doing scrum. It's about the flow of value across multiple teams doing scrum. So I tend to think of kind of an epic feature user story decomposition hierarchy. And, and it can be more complicated than that. You can use different words, but just kind of big things, middle-sized things, small things, right? So small things run through the teams, but small things inevitably roll up into big things or medium things like at the feature level. And I actually, what I really care about is the rate of throughput of the medium-sized things. And then as I get a bunch of medium-sized things and they roll up into big things. And the ultimate goal at an enterprise level is for the big things to come out of the system first, because those tend to be the chunks that the enterprise can go and sell. And in order to get the big things to come out first, I have to sequence the work of the teams doing the small things and the rate at which the middle sized things get done. So I have most of the features and the big things um, when, when they're ready at the earliest possible moment. And so having 2000 people, right? Maybe it's, um, what would that be? Uh, you know, 2,000 people, well, gosh, what would that be? Uh, you know, five, three, 400 teams, something like that. Um, it's funny, I couldn't do the math very quick. Right? Yeah, so, I can't do math yeah, in my head right, either. Right, yeah, I usually can for some reason, maybe it's late in the day. 222 here. teams. There you go, man, 222 teams, right? So, um, so having 250 teams all doing Scrum 
but have dependencies between them with no ability to coordinate the flow of value or tie the output of those teams up to strategic objectives. That'd be one jacked up highway. It's jacked up highway, right? It's a bunch of people really super busy doing probably a lot of great work with nothing actually getting to where it's supposed to go. And, and so, and so anytime we put in layered systems and I know Dean takes a lot of heat from this is he basically goes, um, you know, you need some of these, um, we call them compensating controls, right? You need some of these compensating mechanisms and the presence of dependencies, right? And scale. And it's true, right? And so I say a lot, either you break dependencies or you manage dependencies. And so if you can't break them, you have to manage them. If you don't want to manage them, you have to break them. And so, and so, like you have to have these compensating controls in place, right? Because a lot of independent scrum teams that aren't really independent that have a ton of dependencies. Like, I mean, you look at these Spotify models and things like that, right? And that's brilliant stuff. And Henrik, like, like great work, right? Appreciate him documenting that. But Spotify is a very um, unique product in the way that it's constructed and the way that it's built. And, and I would venture to suggest that most organizations and most teams are not running, operating in on top of products that are architected the way that architected, you know? And so we're going to do the Spotify model. What does that mean? We're going to have tribes and, you know, um, you know, leagues or whatever. I apologize. I don't don't remember all the words right off the top of my head, but, but the idea is, is that we're going to have, we're going to use all the words and we're going to create all the constructs, but, but it doesn't account for the nature of dependencies the way they exist in most of these organizations that we're dealing with. Right? right. And so, and so like, I mean, this is just like a call for like extreme pragmatism and, and, you know, again, it's a little self-serving, but it's like, that's the reason why we chose leading agile to focus on transformation because I don't want to be in methodology wars. All these methodologies are written by really smart guys doing really interesting things and really cool contacts. But what businesses need to be is predictable. And it starts with teams and then it starts with steady throughput across teams and steady throughput at the enterprise level, right? And that's where we need to get. Cool. So I, I think this actually worked pretty good. I actually like this, this line of conversation. <laughs> okay. I, think, I think we should do another one of them. I think we should too. And if you have watched any of the videos, which I'll include a link to yeah. in the show notes, please send us whatever questions you have and we'll include those in a, in a future interview. Excellent, man. Well, thank Thanks, you so much. Mike. Yep. Have a good one, man. See you. Bye. Thanks. Yep.